You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn. And in today's show, we're going to be reviewing a book by Jeff Pollard, which is titled Christian Modesty and the Public Undressing of America. So yes, if you said for the third week in a row, we are going to beat to death the issue of Christian modesty, you're right. We are, in fact, going to do that. But I think it's necessary and warranted given the state of our culture. And particularly in this episode, I want to unpack through Jeff's book some of the particular issues related to Christian modesty as they pertain to the history of the church, theological interpretation, and specific passages We're going to dive into some of those today, and so I hope that it is beneficial to you. Now, again, if you haven't listened to the other two episodes, you don't necessarily need to do that, but we do have two previous episodes. One was with Pastor Brian Sauvey, and then I did one with Pastor Brian and Pastor Dan from Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. And we were talking about modesty, and then we were also in the second show last week, we were talking about sort of the Twitter dumpster fire that erupted because prominent evangelicals were anti, really anti-Christian modesty, as we'll see in today's show, to be Dion Wabile slash Ron Burns, uh, Beth Moore, Kyle J. Howard, uh, Jacob Denhollander, a bunch of other people came out and basically were railing against the traditional position of the church throughout history and scripture. So what I thought pertinent was today we would go over the book as a review Christian Modesty and the Public Undressing of America. Again, that's Jeff Pollard. So I want to give an overview, kind of my overall take, and then we'll jump into really the three main points of Jeff's book. Now, the first thing to keep in mind is Jeff's book is fairly short. It is 74 pages in length, so it does not take a long time to read. However, it is very insightful, and I feel like it's pretty, it's pretty dense material in the sense that you get a lot per page, I guess I would say. Uh, the Virgin that I have is the ninth printing. Um, First printing, I believe, was in 2004, and the last was in 2011. I think the only way to get a copy of this book is uh, to get a used copy, which I got through Amazon. Uh, The reason for that, the book is published by Vision Forum, uh, which no longer exists. Um, And that is because, as you'll see in the the book, the foreword slash introduction is written by none other than Doug Phillips, and, um, you know, it's interesting. Doug, of course, committed uh, some form of adultery. Never really sure on the details there. But anyway, he, his ministry fell apart. He was really um, central to it. And so Vision Forum fell apart. However, as I was reading uh, the introduction by Doug Phillips, I was kind of impressed with how really wonderful and amazing it is. Um, so, yeah, just a good warning. Uh, remember that sometimes with David, too. Uh, in the Bible, that the Psalms were written by David, and this was a man who had committed adultery and murder, and doesn't take away from the things that he wrote. Um, so you can still derive just tremendous benefit from what is written in the book, and and really, again, the introduction itself is really good. So overall, on the book, I would give it five out of five stars. Um, I would definitely highly recommend this book. I think that it's a great resource for both laymen. Um, and pastors. I think if you're a man, you're a woman, you're a teenager, this is going to be a good read for you. And particularly those, I think, who want to learn more and then teach on this subject matter. One of the things that should drive us as Christians is we want to know what Scripture teaches, and then we want to, we want to be obedient from the heart, right? That's Paul's expression in Romans. We want to be obedient from the heart to the teaching of Scripture. We don't want to be licentious, right? We don't want to live like the world, but we don't also want to be legalists, creating extra biblical commands. And so what we need to do is know what the scripture teaches and then adhere to that faithfully. So why do I think this book is so useful? Well, I think it's related to the three main aims of the book, which are to show a scriptural defense of Christian modesty, number one. So to show what the Bible says about it. Number two, to uncover the historical view of modesty from key biblical interpreters. So this gives us a a good understanding of what the church thought about key passages on modesty, nakedness, etc. in Scripture. So that's helpful. 
And then it also third highlights the book highlights the influence that fashion designers had in the 20th century with the evolving design of particularly the swimsuit. So one of the issues, interestingly enough, that always comes up is the swimsuit. Um, This is where Christians tend to have differences. And um, even after the first two episodes, I heard uh, several Christian brothers say, if you know, as long as the father, a husband wants his wife to wear a swimsuit in public, there's no issue with that. Um, I think that's a wrong position. Um, And I'm going to show hopefully from the book and from Jeff Pollard why that is. And even if you disagree, I would encourage people uh, to read Jeff's book, check it out, and examine these scriptural cases in the history of interpretation for yourself, and hopefully we'll all be bettered by that. So why do I think that the church needs this message today? Well, as we've been discussing in the last few weeks, the American church has been conformed largely to the pornographic practices of the culture around us, right? We're not very distinct. And so it's my hope that as faithful pastors and elders and teachers rediscover the Bible's teaching on modesty, on nakedness, on shame, it's my prayer that we will repent, that we will put some clothes on, and we will live as God's distinct holy people in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. That is, that we will be salt and light to the culture around us. So before we delve into the three main arguments that are represented in Pollard's book, I want to highlight a few helpful points that are made in the forward again by Doug Phillips. These insights help explain why modesty is such a hot-button issue in the culture today, something Brian Sauvey and Dan Burkholder and I saw when we tried to address it on Twitter. So Doug Phillips uh, has some good insights for us. So first of all, uh, Doug points to Henry Van Til, who said, culture is religion externalized, right? Culture is religion externalized. And therefore, dress, by proxy, which is a function of culture, dress is religion externalized. Likewise, this means that the way of people live, and I'm quoting now, the way of people live their lives, the way that they communicate, their philosophy of work, their approach to aesthetics, right, including clothing, all of this reflects the standards and priorities of the people, and those priorities are dictated by their true faith, end quote. So in other words, contrary to what many Christians believe today, including many prominent evangelical leaders, we've mentioned them, the way that we dress is not morally neutral or insignificant. While good Christians can and will differ on various particulars of how we apply these passages and principles, we should all agree that holiness, piety, and biblical principle should be driving the discussion for Christians, and it should drive the way we conceive of a dress code not the dictates of a godless, sensual, pornographic culture. And I think one of the helpful things that uh, is brought up in the introduction is that everyone functionally has a dress code. You can compare this to the church and liturgy, and a lot of churches say, oh, we're a non-liturgical church. Well, oftentimes that's just that they have a bad liturgy. Everybody has a liturgy. Everybody has a theology. Some think through it, and it's robust and biblical, and other people don't think through it, and so it's shoddy. So even if you're talking to your average American, not Christian, but just your average American, even they will have some sort of dress code, right? Can you go out in nipple pasties and thong? Can, can you do that in everyday public? Even most people in corporate America would say, no, you can't do that. So corporate places have dress codes, right? And even Christians who say they don't have dress codes, they do in fact have dress codes. So what we want to do is we want to inform our dress code according to scripture, and again, not according to a pornographic culture, which is what we so often do. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, the three main false ideologies that are pointed out in the introduction that are largely responsible for the church's present weakness on the issue of modesty, these are highlighted, and I want to highlight them now because I think they're so important. So why are we in this situation culturally where when you talk about modesty, people just have very shallow things to say about it. Number one, because of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is the view that the physical body does not matter. And that is very predominant in the church today. Number two, antinomianism. Antinomianism means a disdain for or a rejection of God's law. So many Christians today refuse to look to the law of the Lord for guidance on how Christians should live. And so we end up in a lawless society. 
Number three is what is called the neutrality postulate. This is the idea that Christ is not Lord over every area, but is only Lord over our spiritual lives. So this is tied closely to the other two things, to antinomianism and to Gnosticism. Sadly, many pastors today teach along these lines. What you do with your body does not matter. And it is fundamentally your own decision to wear, quote, whatever feels fun, end quote, as the youth pastor said a few weeks back on Facebook. Hey, girl, just wear what what feels fun to you. Luke Brand told me so. It's okay. Right? Many pastors today teach that scripture does not speak to certain issues of modesty, or if it does at all, well, don't worry, because it doesn't apply to you. Now, finally, the introduction gives a very succinct summary of the historical view of the church. In general, it is this that bodies are made to be covered, not uncovered, and that public nakedness is associated with shame, and that the aim of clothing is holiness and modesty as a covering, not intimately highlighting all the sexual aspects of a person's body by uncovering them and centrally drawing attention to them. In turn, that's been a helpful principle for me as I sift through the myriad issues in which we have to talk about modesty in our culture today. I simply ask myself, is this clothing item or this dress choice driven by a desire to cover or to uncover nakedness? If anything, as Christians, we should err on the side of covering rather than exposing and causing shame. So the first point that I want to talk about in today's show is this. The book, written by Jeff Pollard, presents a strong scriptural defense of Christian modesty, and I think it's hugely helpful on this point. When discussing modesty among Christians, I've noticed at least two major trends. On the one hand, there are those Christians who grew up in legalistic environments. Many of you will know these. These are the kind of environments where extra-biblical commands were placed on people, and particularly young people. So, for example, fundamentalist Baptists or charismatic believers who were raised and taught that drinking a beer or chewing tobacco or showing bare ankles or playing cards or wearing hair shorter than the middle of your back, all of these things they were taught were inherently immoral. And by the way, none of these are commands that can be supported by Scripture. Many in this camp tend to chafe against any discussion of modesty since it was a subject often abused by legalistic teachers and authority figures in their past. They can tend to land in the other ditch, which is living in disregard for any sexual restraint in dress or behavior. Now, on the other hand, there are Christians who've been raised with an a priori or foundational assumption that what they wear doesn't fall under Christ's lordship and is simply a matter of preference or personal choice. So many Christians today come to difficult questions like modesty, and before they even look at the text, they don't even know what Scripture says. They just assume that the Bible doesn't address it, and then they find Bible teachers, prominent Bible teachers, who tell them the exact same thing. Since the Bible, in this view, doesn't use the word bikini or yoga pants, clearly God doesn't have an opinion on the matter. And so these folks are taught that Scripture doesn't have anything to say about modesty or any kind of dress code. And since there's not a list of acceptable 20th century clothing items found in Scripture, you know, things like dress length, shoulder strap widths, then they assume we can dress however we subjectively and individually see fit. Well, as long as it's comfortable, as long as my wife likes to wear it or my daughter, if you've got it, girl, flaunt it, slay, queen. In all these instances, what we really need is a more robust biblical literacy and biblical understanding of the principles and aim of clothing, right? What are clothing for? Why did God make them? And yes, it was God who was the first clothing inventor and the first fashion designer, as it were. So what is clothing for? And what is nakedness about? Why do we have coverings at all? And why are we called to practice modesty? What we're looking for is a biblical understanding of all these subjects that is neither worldly nor legalistic. While Scripture does not give us a fixed set of rules, something that John Calvin pointed out, 
and there's no such thing as specific clothing items that are listed in Scripture as permissible. Instead, Scripture gives us something better. It gives us general principles that can be applied in an incredibly helpful way. As always, these principles must be applied with wisdom and must not be applied woodenly. Chapter 2 of the book begins with a discussion about 1 Timothy 2.9, which is a passage that is very often misquoted and misunderstood. 1 Timothy 2.9 says this, In like manner also, that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness, with good works. Now, first of all, from this passage and with the help of Noah Webster's dictionary, Pollard derives a helpful definition of modesty, which is this Christian modesty is the inner self government rooted in a proper understanding of oneself before God, which outwardly displays itself in humility and purity from a genuine love for Jesus Christ rather than in self-glorification or self-advertisement. Christian modesty will not publicly expose itself in sinful nakedness. So Pollard goes on to explain that modesty is, quote, a broad concept not limited to sexual connotation, but he will say it certainly includes it. It is a state of mind or disposition that expresses a humble estimate of oneself before God and it does not seek to draw attention to itself or to show off in an unseemly way. So you can understand how a woman, say, dressing in a sexually provocative manner, is drawing undue attention to herself. And also that type of behavior reveals, as Calvin will say, an unchastity of the heart and a a problem with the inner disposition. Now, according to Noah Webster, when applied to women, It relates to a woman's chaste manner and apparel. So in other words, modesty is an inward disposition that manifests itself in outward actions, again, including how we dress and how we carry ourselves in society. It is worth pointing out at this point that the Greek word here for modest is kosmios, from the root word kosmos, which means, quote, well-ordered, decent, modest, or virtuous. The second word, which the KJV translates as shamefacedness, and the NASB as modestly, is eidos, which means, quote, from a sense of shame or modesty. So there are actually two words being used here that can get translated as modest depending on which English translation you are using. So the word cosmos comes from the root word cosmos, as I said, and this refers to all of creation. The cosmos is all of God's creation ordered according to God's word. In turn, what brings about this good order is the application of God's standards. So when we talk about good order, this is not subjective, right? I've heard several people in response to the modesty discussion say, well, as long as you're not, you know, creating disorder, and then, and then let's not define what that is. We have to define it according to the standard of Scripture. We are not the ones that get to decide what well-ordered and virtuous means, and it is not primarily an order set by pagan culture or taste. Again, when you look at the context of the passage and what is a major theme in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, it is all about God establishing his good order in the midst of his people in worship. And that means Sunday morning worship should not mirror a whorehouse or perhaps the red carpet walk at the Oscars, right? So this concept of God loving all things done decently and in order, one of the things that brings order to the church is women who dress and act modestly, not like prostitutes, in the midst of worship and the fellowship of God's people. Now, the word eidos, on the other hand, connotes modesty in apparel or behavior, which comes from a proper sense of shame. Now, this is difficult for us to understand in our culture today that shame can be a good thing, but in an honor culture, it is. And what's being conveyed here in the passage is that public nakedness and shame are associated. 
right? This is why a modest woman does not seek to uncover her nakedness in public through sensual dress. Now, something important to keep in mind at this point, the Greek word here, eidos, has a reference not only to the woman causing herself shame, but also causing shame to others in her society and in the community of the church. So, in other words, it's not just about us as individuals. Sensual dress is a form of rebellion against God's good order, and it brings shame upon the whole community of God's people. This is why Paul said the whole congregation should be concerned with women who are dressing immodestly in the context of worship. Now, another thing to keep in mind at this point, and Pollard makes this point as well, and I think it's an apropos point, is that what we do in worship is meant to set the pattern for all of life. So when we have these standards, and we made this argument in relation to patriarchy as well, these standards don't just apply to worship. Obviously, women should be modest in all of life, not just when they're worshiping God. Now, what many modern Christians do with this passage is they want to reduce it to mean only that women should not dress ostentatiously or luxuriously, and they claim that this is the only thing meant by modesty in the passage. But when you start to dig into the Greek lexical references, this is patently false. As Pollard points out, and he points to many lexical uh, references and also commentaries, Paul's language here definitely includes sensual dress and the nuance of women dressing so as to be sexually enticing, right? While Greek religious cults were often accompanied by prostitutes who acted in dress so as to attract male clientele, duh, just go to Las Vegas, the same thing happens today. So Paul unequivocally forbids this type of behavior in the church. Likewise, it is obvious that this sin, given what Paul said, this sin is particularly addressed to women. Just as men tend to sin by lusting with their eyes, women tend to sin by dressing in a way that would cause men to lust after them. Right? This was one of the points that a lot of the feminist, egalitarian, Beth Moore type people want to push against. The only sin happening is the man, this lustful pig. What is he doing? Well, that's not at all what Paul says in the passage. In fact, if you look at Calvin and we'll look at some other commentators on this passage, they all say the woman has a responsibility so as not to cause her brother to sin by dressing in a sexually provocative manner. Virtually all of ch- church history, we, we knew this to be true. It's only in the waves of feminism now that wi- women, guess what? They cannot sin. And so it's all the men's fault. The reality is men are not supposed to lust and women are not supposed to provoke that lust either. Now, at this point, Pollard cites J.N.D. Kelly's commentary on the pastoral epistles, who says of shamefacedness and sobriety, quote, The former used only in the New Testament connotes feminine reserve in matters of sex. The latter basically stands for perfect self-mastery in the physical appetites. As applied to women, it too had a definitively sexual nuance, end quote. So you get the point here. It is definitely without question talking about sexually provocative dress. And again, Kelly says, quote, while his remarks conform broadly to the conventional diatribe against female extravagance, what is probably foremost in his mind, that is Paul's mind, is the impropriety of women exploiting their physical charms and also the emotional disturbance they are liable to cause their male fellow worshipers, end quote. Likewise, George W. Knight says the passage is not only about costly, extravagant attire, but, quote, also, as the mode of dress here described by Paul reflects that of courtesans and harlots, read whores, it is the excess and sensuality that Paul forbids. Again, so based on the Greek language and what's being said here, Many, many commentators, especially those before 1960, all point out, look, Paul is talking about excessively whorish sensual dress. That's clear. It's not just about luxurious clothing, and we have lexical reference and commentary to back that up. So at this point, I want to summarize Pollard's insights about 1 Timothy 2.9. 
It is clear that modesty is closely related to a woman's dress and that godly women should avoid sensual, sexually enticing apparel in public. This passage is clearly not just about expensive or luxurious clothing and jewelry, but it is also about a woman's natural instinct to use her beauty to attract attention from men. Anyone with two eyes who's lived for more than five minutes in the world knows that this is true. Women love to be lusted after, men love to lust. Okay, and so Paul's warning against that particularly female sin. Likewise, while principle of modesty apply specifically to women in this passage, they also apply very much so to men. However, this passage teaches us that the tendency to dress provocatively is uniquely a feature of the feminine nature. As gifted beautifiers of the creation, women can also use this strength and power sinfully, and it can become a tendency to use their beauty and charm to gain undue attention and often power over men. Now, contrary to what false teachers like Ron Burns and Beth Moore say, women should absolutely take care not to cause their brothers to sin by giving rise to lust. Yes, men are responsible not to lust, but women, hear me, you are responsible to not give rise to unnecessary sexual temptation particularly men in worship, men around you, etc. This is one of the immediate and explicit points that Paul is making in the passage. Now, I will say this by way of application as well. Notice how Paul's doing this. He's addressing female sins. We're taught by the egalitarian, feminist, critical race theory, woke culture that we are not allowed to address feminine sins in the body. But if we're to follow the Apostle Paul in the Word of God, we definitely will have to do this. The other thing that we're going to have to do is fight against the temptation of our people to listen to people like Ron Burns and Beth Moore, who are encouraging women, hey, it doesn't matter. It's not your fault. Wear whatever you want. Wear whatever's sexy, fun, whatever. If your brother sins, that's his fault. This is patently and explicitly unbiblical. Now, the second major thing that Jeff Pollard does, and the second major passage, really, that he addresses is Genesis 1 through 3. And so I want to summarize that briefly now. In Genesis 1 through 3, we have the story of Adam and Eve created in the garden, and then, of course, uh, the fall into sin. Now, Adam and Eve were created naked, and at this point, pre-sin, they are not ashamed, and they are in the garden. However, something happens. When they're tempted by the serpent and they fall into sin, they soon and immediately thereafter recognize their nakedness and the way, particularly, that it produces shame. They were naked and unashamed, and now they are naked and ashamed. So Adam and Eve, what do they do? They sew together loincloths, which were something to the effect of thongs covering their private parts. The prescient verse here is Genesis 3.21, and it says this, Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. So this is a really interesting feature of the text, is it not? I've actually never uh, noticed this until I read Jeff Pollard's book, but it's absolutely true. God was the first father in history to tell his undressed kids to go back upstairs and to put more clothing on before they went out in public. You didn't have enough clothes on. God is the one who said, this is a problem. Your little G-string loincloths are not enough. Covering the private parts is not enough. That does not constitute fully clothed. And so what does God do? He provides them full clothing, right? Whereas they attempted to cover only their crotches, God clearly said this was not enough. And so in response, he kills animals and he gives them, and Jeff will get into this, and we'll get into it a little bit, but the word here is kutonets. Right, I pronounce that like a Frenchman. It's a Hebrew word, so look that up, and you can get a better pronunciation. But kutonets, or tunics, made of animal skins. So Pollard is going to go into this term and the lexical history of the kutonet. No, it's probably kutonet. I don't know. Whatever it is, there's a history and a rich history that we can follow and trace behind this word. More or less, it was a loose-fitting garment that had long sleeves, sometimes with shorter sleeves as well, depending on the work and uh, what was going on in the climate. And these also went to mid-calf or to ankle. 
Now, while Jeff is not making, he says this, he is not making the argument that we should all wear tunics, he does, I think, have a valid point here. God's standard for proper covering of nakedness seems to be from the knee to the shoulder, or below the knee, just below the knee to the shoulder. And we'll look at some other examples, but I think that's actually a good biblical principle to derive from the text, right? Basically, Adam and Eve have bikinis on, thongs, whatever you want to call it, and God says, you're naked, and that's shameful, and that's not okay. So at this point, Pollard examines a few other passages that confirm from the Old and New Testament that nakedness does in fact mean more than exposing your privates or being completely, as we would say, stark naked. For example, in John 21.7, Peter is said to be gumnos, this is the Greek word, or naked. When was he, does that mean that he was completely buck naked? Well, no, he has removed his outer tunic for work on the sea, and he still has his undergarments on. And in this passage, he is still said to be naked. In case you were wondering, the word gumnos means, quote, naked, stripped bare, without an outer garment, without which a decent person did not appear in public. And that reference comes from uh, Bauer's Greek-English lexicon. Now, in Isaiah 47, 1 through 3, this is another passage that is uh, brought up by Jeff. The virgin daughter of Israel is humiliated and in shame because she has made, quote, bare the leg and she has uncovered the thigh, right? So we understand like your, your thigh and your bare leg are a sense of nakedness and therefore shame. It's not a good thing. Another passage that is brought up is in Luke chapter 8. You remember the demoniac. He was possessed, of course, by demons. And what was he doing? He's going around, he's naked. And when Christ comes and heals him, we are told specifically that he was clothed and in his right mind. Right? Pollard points out Satan's methods ever since that day and since the fall seem to be to get people to take off more and more of their clothes in public, thus exposing them to shame, while God, on the other hand, seems to be in the business of covering shame and nakedness and providing garments for his people. We see this also in Revelation. We are given white robes to wear. The other thing that's really interesting is you think about the seraphim and the people who come into God's presence, and what do they do? They cover themselves. When you're in the presence of a holy God, you cover yourselves, right? The seraphim are covering their, their groin and their eyes, right? And so it's, it seems understandable that God's holy people, like the priests, you enter the presence of God and you need to be clothed. This is kind of the overall principle that scripture seems to be teaching. And we have some pretty clear principles here as well about what constituted forms of improprious nakedness. Likewise, Pagan prostitutes, especially in the New Testament period, but also before that, were known for going around in sensual dress. Again, this is an obvious method for gaining the attention of men, i.e. their clientele. In contrast, Christian culture throughout history have rejected this kind of NC-17 rated attire, and they have been known for this attire very much so. Think about the Amish and the Mennonite as soon as you see them. You know exactly what they believe and who they are, and you know that they're this, they're very distinct from the culture around them, especially today. Now, in the end, regarding Pollard's case from Scripture, I think he makes a really solid biblical case for modesty, for covering, and for nakedness from the text. Now, here's another question you might ask at this point: Does the scriptural standard, i.e., being covered from shoulder to knee? seem kind of odd compared to the way our culture views nakedness and pornographic attire. Well, yeah, absolutely. In fact, even as I was reading these things, I was, I was kind of thinking to myself like, wow, that's, that seems extreme. But when you think about it and you start reading more, we'll get into this in a second from commentators, really a hundred years ago, this would not have seemed strange at all. If we said, cover yourself from shoulder to knee, people would have been like, really? Probably the ankle though, don't you think? I mean, it's just because we've been so exposed to nakedness and we're a culture full of shame, right? That we don't take these things according to biblical standard. But maybe, just maybe, if you take this standard 
seriously and honestly, you take it as a matter of obedience as a Christian, well, just maybe the point of holiness will be revealed. It's to be distinct from the world around us. Certainly, as I said before, this is the way the Amish and the Mennonite folks have dressed throughout history, and it makes their religious conviction immediately apparent. But the question for much of the church today is, by the way the church dresses, can you tell them apart from the world at all? I think the obvious answer in most cases is no, absolutely not. They look identical to the culture. Right? Many, we'll get into this, many people today dress worse than whores 100 years ago. Right? Think about that. When Calvin and Bunyan and other people say they were dressing like whores, those whores had more clothing on than people do today at the beach. As Pollard goes on to point out, the obvious practical application to this situation and to modesty and these principles of the Bible is that modern swimwear, including two-piece bathing suits, if you can call them that, basically underwear, even skin-tight one-pieces with V-shaped crotches, speedos on dudes, shirtless men, all of this, according to biblical principle, is a flagrant violation of virtually everything that we've been talking about as it pertains to public nakedness. We're going to get into the swimsuits in just a moment, but that is one of the very serious applications. But you know what? There's some other applications as well. You know what else is off limits? Backless dresses, tube tops, dresses with slits that run to within, oh, say, a few inches of a woman's crotch, right? The little shorty shorts that are wedged up in a woman's crotch. You can barely tell the difference between her thigh and her groin region. Right, painted on jeans that country singers love to sing about. They show every contour of buttock vagina. They expose the midriff. We have spandex tops. We have blouses and bras that intentionally set cleavage a bursting forth. Right? We have see-through, white, black, every color of yoga pant that reveals every single contour, bend, curve of the female anatomy leaves basically nothing to imagination. We have the sheer dresses that leave unmistakable imprints of whatever kind of underwear a woman is wearing. We have the kind of gaudy, disgusting sports bra attire that people wear to the gym. We have the gym bros with the shirts with no sides on them. On and on we could go. It's very simple when you look at the biblical principle. All of this fails to meet the requirement for modest clothing, right? You're unveiling nakedness, right? One of the things that I've come to that's really, really helpful in all of this, right? If all else fails, remember, remember that the goal and purpose of clothing is not to look as sexy as possible. The goal and purpose of clothing is not to expose as much as possible. You go girl, slay queen. And the goal and purpose of your clothing is not to quote, do whatever feels fun to quote the Luke Bryan youth pastor, right? The goal of clothing is to be covered. It is to protect your own chastity and that of the men or women around you. It is to honor the Lord with modest and appropriate apparel. This is, after all, what promotes good order according to God's principle. So remember, you are not your own, right? The feminist lie, our bodies, ourselves, we'll do with them what we want. But remember 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Remember, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now I want to delve into the second main thrust of Jeff Pollard's book, which is that it delivers a strong case based on the historical interpretations from the church on modesty and key relevant passages. And I think this is really helpful for us to look at. So while the historical record of the church is not infallible, I'm not arguing for that, it is often helpful to stand on the shoulders of greater men because while the men of the past had errors, they did not have our errors, right? They had blind spots, but they had blind spots that are different than our own. This was one of the reasons C.S. Lewis said we need to read old books so that we don't keep committing the blind spot sins of our generation. When you think about men like Calvin and Knox and Luther and Augustine, fortunately for us, they were not caught up in a whirlwind of post-1960s sexual revolution. They were not part of a culture that openly celebrated the rank sewer of fornication, sodomy, and an ever-diminishing standard for public decency regarding dress like we are today. 
And so in this way, they can be massively helpful to us as we examine this issue of modesty. So we've already shared insights from a few theologians along the way, as they've talked about relevant passages, 1 Timothy 2.9, Genesis 1-3, through but I want to highlight a few more of these just to show how our fathers in the faith viewed this particular issue of modesty. So the first one that I want to quote from, uh, this is John Calvin on 1 Timothy 2, and he observes about the passage, quote, Yet we must always begin with the dispositions, for where debauchery reigns within, there will be no chastity, and where ambition reigns within, there will be no modesty in the outward dress. Undoubtedly, the dress of a virtuous and godly woman must differ from that of a strumpet. By the way, the word here, strumpet, is a prostitute or whore. So Calvin says the dress of a virtuous and godly woman must differ, obviously, from a strumpet. If piety must be testified by works, this profession ought also to be visible in chaste and becoming dress. So again, Calvin pointing out a couple of really helpful things here. Number one, that if you're immodestly dressed, it's reflecting something about your heart, and and we need to address that, and we need to repent of that sin, and that's what it is. It is sin, right? A, A whore, a prostitute, dresses the way she does because she's unrepentant, because her heart, her life is out of order. She's pursuing men for the very, very wrong reasons against the commandment of the Lord, and so her dress reflects that sinful disposition of the heart. Very helpful and insightful from Calvin. The other thing that I would point out, as I pointed out before, uh, Brian Sauvet and I, Pastor Brian and I, on Twitter got in trouble because we said the woman in a bikini is dressing in a whorish manner. And part of the issue is, we'll see this with, with John Bunyan as well, our fathers in the faith, these men that we respect and revere, especially in the Reformed camp, they had no problem speaking about Horace dress, right? That is a blind spot of our feminist age where you just can't talk about obvious, plain things. The cow goes moo, whores dress like whores, don't dress like a whore. So Calvin will also go on to say, and I find this one is helpful as well, he'll go on to say, quote, since dress is an indifferent matter as all outward matters are, and he means that compared to the heart, the dress is only a sign of what's going on internally, it is difficult to sign a fixed limit in how far we ought to go. This at least will be settled beyond all controversy that everything in dress which is not in accordance with modesty and sobriety must be disapproved. End quote. So, again, what's helpful here is Calvin brings up a very important point that it is really hard to set a fixed limit, right? There is no such thing as you can't wear tank tops, you can't wear this, you can't wear that. If God wanted us to have that, he would have ordered it so that his word would say that. But what he does throughout scripture on this issue and others is he gives us principles and then he calls us in wisdom to apply them, not woodenly, but in wisdom to differing situations. So we we really should not be looking for a quote unquote like by the letter dress code. That's not what God gives us. We have, to, we have to use our brains and we have to use our insight and wisdom. And then the other thing that's really helpful here is the end of the quote. He says, in accordance with modesty and sobriety, this is how a godly woman should dress. You notice what Calvin is saying. This passage definitely, without question, regards modest and sober dress in women, particularly uh, dress that is not sensual, or seeking to arouse the attention, the lusts of men. The next passage that I want to quote from, this is uh, actually Gordon Wenham, who has a pretty solid commentary on the book of Genesis. And Gordon Wenham is quite helpful in unpacking what's going on in the Genesis text regarding the loincloths that we talked about, and then uh, God making the tunics of skin. So this is what Gordon Wenham says. Our first parents, in that hasty provision which they made against their shame, took care only for aprons, right? These are the loincloths. This is the actual, the the loincloths that Adam and Eve made for themselves. KJV says aprons. 
But God, who had adequate conception of their wants and what was necessary to supply them, of the rule of decency and what would fully answer it, provided for them instead coats, so that the whole body might be covered and concealed. Again, so Gordon Wyndham is saying, look, yeah, your little G-string thong loincloth, that's not going to do. God recognized the problem, and he provides a full set of clothing. The next one that I want to read from is going to be from John Bunyan. And John Bunyan says this, and he's speaking about uh, why women follow the fashion trends of the culture. (laughs) This is funny. We always think of John Bunyan as a really a devotional writer. Um, Obviously, Pilgrim's Progress, we're like, oh, he's so devotional and sweet and comforting. But listen to what John Bunyan has to say about modest attire. Quote, why are they women for going with their naked shoulders and their paps hanging out like a cow's bag? Why are they for painting their faces, for stretching out the neck, and for putting themselves onto all the formalities which proud fancy leads them to? Is it because they would honor God? Because they would adorn the gospel? Because they would beautify religion and make sinners to fall in love with their own salvation? No, no, it is rather to please their own lusts. I believe also that Satan has drawn more into the sin of uncleanness by the spangling show of fine clothes than he could possibly have drawn unto it without them. I wonder what it was that of old was called the attire of the harlot. Right again, notice John Bunyan is saying dressing like a whore. I wonder what it was that of old was called the attire of the harlot. Certainly, it could not be more bewitching and tempting than are the garments of many professing Christians this day. Do you understand what John Bunyan just said? He, he's talking about the church, and he said, a lot of you women dress like whores, and that's a problem. So again, we need, we need the church fathers. We need um, people in later history. We need people to uh, break through our blind, feminist, woke uh blinders right we need to see these things and to have a different perspective from a different era uh the next one that i want to quote from is going to be from thomas manton and thomas manton said this garments were given to cover nakedness and the deformity that was introduced by sin therefore the apostle saith let the woman adorn themselves in modest apparel The leaving the breast naked in whole or in part is a transgression of this rule. They uncover their nakedness, which they should veil and hide, especially in God's presence. Yet usually women come hither with a shameless impudence in the presence of God and men and of angels. This is a practice that neither suits with modesty nor conveniency. Nothing can be alleged for it but reasons of pride and wantonness. It feeds your own pride. It provokes lust in others. You would think there were wicked women that should offer others poison to drink. They do not that which is worse, they who lay a snare for the soul. They uncover that which should be covered. Christians should be far from allowing sin in themselves or provoking it in others. So again, Thomas Manton, really helpful here. He says, basically, if you want to come to church, dress like a whore, or if you want to dress like a whore in public, if you want to expose your nakedness in this way, why don't you just go give the men poison? Because at least that will only kill their body. But the way that you are giving rise to lust and provoking it in others is causing the destruction of their souls. I think it's, it's just helpful to hear men of the past talk like this way and then to realize that we're idiots. We are idiots for thinking that you can't say, look, women clearly and obviously entice men to sin, and that's a problem. Stop dressing like whores, ladies. Fathers, don't let your wives, don't let your daughters dress in whorish garb, right? Again, pastors and fathers and godly men in the past had no problem saying this. All right, the last one that I want to quote from is from Richard Baxter. So this is Richard Baxter, and I believe, yeah, this is uh, his Christian Directory, Volume 1. If you're not seeing that, it's hyper expensive book, basically all his counseling advice, um, and it is enormous. So Baxter is wisely commenting about women and sin and their clothing, and he says this, 
They do so, these women, to the ensnaring of the minds of the beholders in shamelessness, lustful, wanton passions. Though you say, oh, I intend it not, it is your sin that you do that which probably will procure it, that, yea, you did not your best to avoid it, and you are guilty of sin. And though it be their sin and their vanity that is the cause, right? He's saying men are not allowed to lust either. He says this to the women. It is nevertheless your sin to the unnecessary occasion and rise for sin and lust in others. For you must consider that you live among diseased souls, and you must not lay a stumbling block in their way, nor blow up the fire of their lust, nor make your ornaments their snares. But you must walk among sinful persons, as you would do with a candle among straw or gunpowder, or else you may see the flame which you would not foresee when it is too late to quench it. And again, he'll go on to admonish women, saying, You should rather serve Christ with your apparel, by expressing humility, self-denial, chastity, and sobriety, to draw others to imitate you in the good, than rather to serve the devil and pride and lust by it, and in the process drawing men to imitate you in evil. End quote. So again, powerful, powerful words from Richard Baxter and some other prominent men in the church to kind of give us a flavor of what historically uh, the church has taught on the issue of modesty. Now, third and finally, Pollard traces the influences and intentions of swimwear designers across the 20th century. And um, I think you'll see how prominent and, and why Jeff gets into this. So this is the last main emphasis of Pollard's book, which is to trace the openly stated agenda. Right? This is the open stated agenda of the fashion industry and has been. You can read this. And, you know, as they say, as the kids say today, Jeff has his receipts. Um, he's got uh, footnotes in the book that you can check out. He's done his research and he's quoting people, non-Christian people from within the fashion industry when he makes these claims. They openly state that they sought to change through American swimwear. They sought to change the standards of decency and dress within the American culture. And they were quite successful in doing this. As Pollard points out, swimwear was designed intentionally to undress America and to bring erotic sensual nakedness out into the light of day. Skin type materials were developed and introduced that would display the contour of sexual organs, breasts, butts, and hips in a way that was erotic and arousing. Again, this was their explicitly stated intention. And Christians today are just so dumb when they're making arguments like, oh, well, you know, wearing a two-piece isn't sexually arousing. Are you kidding? We know it's arousing because old men have made a sport out of, quote, people watching at the beach. There's a reason all your grandpas watch beach volleyball. Trust me, they don't care about the white little ball that goes back and forth across the net. Right? As Pollard points out, these fashion designers discovered a significant feature of sexual nature and of arousal. Strategically designed and sparse clothing can actually be more erotic than no clothing at all. Right? This is one reason why men often are so often sexually aroused by lingerie in a way that they're not as much or often by nakedness. This is a fact. And it's the reason that lingerie companies like Victoria's Secret have done what they've done and been successful for so long. Right? Interestingly enough, many of the first swimsuit models absolutely vehemently refused to wear the garments they were given for photo shoots because they saw them to be pornographic and lewd. An entire male pastime, as I said, of people watching with your sunglasses at the beach has developed. I remember reading a Rick Riley book, but he talked about taking his kid to the swimsuit edition for Sports Illustrated and giving his, proudly giving his kid a pair of sunglasses and teaching him how to stare at women's derrieres and breasts without getting caught. Right? And we're going to say swimsuits, that's not a sexual thing. Come on, men. Why are you pigs? Right? What is Sports Illustrated number one, or was, at least? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anymore. What was their number one issue and has been? Swimsuit edition. Duh. From the beginning, this was the fashion industry's stated goal, to deconstruct American Christianity's moral standards. They said this. Likewise, the industry worked closely with Hollywood 
and popular media to slowly destigmatize and normalize the uncovering of more and more flesh. And so they would even say, let's start with a little midriff. Okay, now let's bring the midriff down a little. Let's get those, let's get those bikini bottoms cut higher up the, the hip, right? So they just keep pushing and pushing to normalize what would have been seen before as just profane, obscene dress. How can we learn from the history of the swimsuit? Well, I think the main takeaway here is that Christians are too easily duped by cultural trends, which quickly become golden calves that we refuse to repent of. Right? Even when pagans tell us, hey, I am trying to deceive you, we have Christian pastors out there saying, oh, no, no, no one's deceiving you. Today, it is not uncommon for Christian women to vehemently argue. Like, they get pissed off. Christian women vehemently arguing that two-piece bikinis are perfectly acceptable, even though historically and biblically, it is a clear example of shameful nakedness and immodest dress. It is simply a case in which godless culture and not scripture has shaped our concept of propriety and order. Often, these issues are not addressed by pastors or elders in the church. And gee, gee, wonder, why is that? Well, because they know they will receive serious pushback, blowback, and conflict predominantly from the mostly female and feminist-leaning congregations that they pastor or lead. Women and men along the way have been completely indoctrinated by state schools, by the media, by your TV shows, by your Netflix, to embrace nakedness, not as shame, but as a means to liberation, right? Isn't that what Satan wants you to believe, that the path to freedom is actually the path to conformity and slavery and death, right? In other news, changing gears a little bit, it turns out that Pastor Brian and myself, well, We were not exactly the first people to say that women ought not to dress like whores, right? As we said, Calvin and Bunyan both said very similar things. The only difference is that the whores of their day generally had a lot more clothing on than many professing Christian women do today. If you cannot say amen, just say ouch. At a practical level, what does all this mean? Well, I think without question, it means that Christians need to rethink swimwear. And I think this is just one of many implications and applications of this. If it is a clear violation of biblical principle, and I believe it clearly is, then why do we keep slapping on two-piece, one-piece, crotch-showing bikinis, swimwear, speedos, whatever you're throwing on, and going to the beach and thinking nothing of it just because everybody in the culture is doing it? Why do we allow it in our churches? Again, as I said before, why don't pastors address it from the pulpit? How many sermons have you heard on modesty, and how many of them were actually helpful or specific? So, in addition to the swimwear question, it's made me rethink a number of issues, including the whole concept of co-ed bathing in the first place. We put ourselves in this position that's really awkward and weird, where we all go Uh, get near water, either at a swimming pool or at a beach. And before the 20th century, this was pretty uncommon, particularly co-ed bathing, something Jeff talks about in the book. Like, would you go in your bathroom and co-ed bathe with, like, your buddy and his wife and his daughters? I wouldn't. Man, that's freaking weird. I wouldn't do that. So why do we go to a beach? Why do we go to a swimming pool and do those things? Again, especially when it's all co-ed. So again, I think bathing throughout most of human history, especially in the co-ed sense, is, is pretty bizarre and pretty weird. Second, here's another issue that I've, I've, as I've been thinking through these issues, and I know a lot of you are doing the same thing, you're wrestling through, well, if, if this is what scripture says, how should we apply it? But one of the things I've looked at is like, well, even if I go to a beach, like a public beach where there's a lot of people, or I go to a swimming pool where there's a lot of people, even if my family is appropriately, you know, they're appropriately dressed, according to biblical principle, like shoulder to knee, we're clothed, and it's not, you know, crotch hugging, whatever. Even if that's the case, 
we're going into a situation in which no one else is going to be dressed appropriately, virtually, and it is going to be an obvious stumbling block for men, myself, my kids, right? You, you know it's going to be a stumbling block. And so I started asking that question, is it even worth it? Is it even worth going to those types of situations? Now, I know where we are. You can, you can find private-ish places. You can go to lakes and you can find a little private cove or something. You can go to Lake Powell. You can go somewhere in the West and you can have your own little space on the water. You don't necessarily have to uh, be around other people, but it's really made me think these things through. And people always ask me, we've had this discussion, you know, people always think it's a gotcha, right? They're like, oh, well, what about your boys? What about you? Well, I think men should be covered. And, um, you know, that's actually something that we've held to for a long time. People are always like, why are your boys always wearing swim shirts? We're in the indoor pool. And I say, because I think it's immodest. And people laugh at you, other Christians, and they think you're stupid. And you get called a Puritan. And I say, thank you for the compliment. Right? We're, we're trying to be distinct. And it can actually be a, a point of conversation to have with people. Right? So again, we have to rethink these things. I was talking to one listener and they said, hey, listen, should I put my kids in, you know, ballet if I'm in high school? Well, first of all, I don't think you should like ever put your boys in ballet or your girls. Um, I know some people will disagree. Um, I've been very acquainted with that world through friends and um, it's a homosexual environment, man. Like if you want your daughter to be a lesbian or you want your son to be gay, just put them in gymnastics or ballet. I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with those particular disciplines of the body, not at all. But um, yeah, I just wouldn't even do it today. There's just such a homosexual presence. It's just not even worth it. But you look at the clothing. I mean, every time I went to ballet as a kid to watch, it's like, man, I can see all the Nutcrackers junk. Like, why? Watch the Tim Keller gay ballet thing, you know, where he's got the ballet dancers. Yeah, I mean, you can see their whole package. It's gross, right? It's immodest. That applies to men just as much as to women. So what else have we been thinking through? Well, right now the Summer Olympics are going on, and one of the implications I see is that we are not watching women's beach volleyball. Now, in all fairness, we never really did um, for this very reason. We're not watching swimming. Uh, we're not watching really most track and field events. And by the way, this is easy because we don't have cable or I get it. Some people will have some different convictions there. But for my money, I got tired of being propagandized about the COVID garbage. Um, all this stuff, man. Female gymnastics. It's the grossest thing in the world to me how many old men are like, oh, I just love how talented they are. I'm like, whatever, dude. There's a lot of creepy old man stuff going on there. And again, as I said before, we had this really weird thing where the Norwegian volleyball team, right? I saw it on Twitter. The Norwegian volleyball team was like, we're going to wear, instead of bikinis, we're going to wear shorts. The shorts are still not appropriate. But they were like, we're going to wear shorts. We feel like it's just, you know, we're being turned into sexual objects and we don't want that. It makes it awkward when we're on our periods, etc. And I was kind of like, you know, good for them. And the Olympic officials were like, no, you have to wear bikinis. Now, I don't, I don't know what ended up happening. But I thought, man, this is, this is crazy. Why do they want, what, guys, ladies, come on. Why do they want these women in bikinis and not shorts? Because the only reason people watch women's beach volleyball is they can stare at chicks' butts. Right? That's what it's going on. And if, if you've hung around men at all in the workplace, you know they'll tell you. Dude, that's why I watch that stuff, right? So again, we're not watching these things. Uh, most of them are filled with revealing spandex, women's crotches, bare thighs, shirtless men. And I get it. It's a cultural cost, right? It's hard uh, sometimes because you're like, man, I just want to watch something and I have to deal with all this cultural garbage at every turn. But hey, that's what it means to be a Christian. We need to live with discernment. We need to teach our children what the principle of the Word of the Lord says, and then we need to live by it. So again, I think in a lot of these issues, we just need to get real. Like people don't want to talk about the real issue. Look, here's the other thing with ladies' gymnastics. Are you really that surprised that a bunch of little girls who are like put in these weird camps, like Caroli camp, you know, Beta Caroli camp for all those years, it's like a, sounds like a prison compound. 
and they spend all their time with old men and then lo and behold Larry Nasser is sexually assaulting you know I don't know if it was a majority but a lot of these young women right like we need to be aware of those things it's a corrupt environment and so again I just have these discussions with my kids with my wife like this is why we don't do that So I hope, uh, as we close here, I hope that the review of Jeff's book has been helpful. I hope you will check it out. Again, you can get a used copy. I think it was, uh, I got a good used copy. I think it was eight or nine bucks on Amazon. So you can certainly find those. Definitely recommended reading. Delve into the scripture, figure out what it says, and then live by it. Be distinct as a Christian. Um, I do want to say as well, you know, a lot of people, we've kind of joked, there's been a lot of hate from the culture, right, on this issue of modesty. Um, people just get it's like flaming mad about it. You know, there's a ton of hate, but listen, the encouragement to me and I hope to you as well is the number of replies that I get, you know, people message me on all social media forums and it's like, Hey man, I really appreciate what you and Brian and Dan had to say. We're repenting. And so like we always wore bikinis and we're not doing that anymore. And I never even realized it. And man, it is the most beautiful thing in the world to see people repent because of the clear teaching of scripture. So I just want to encourage everybody that despite the fact that, you know, the snakes are out, you know, the false teachers are out and they're doing their thing, the culture sucks. Just remember that repentance is happening. God's spirit and God's word is changing people. And so I think we need to be thankful and we, you know, me personally, I just need to be I'm super grateful to God that those things are happening. People are listening. And um, again, it should be a huge source of encouragement and thanksgiving from us and, and, and from us to God. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I deeply, deeply appreciate all those who are supporting via Patreon or via ericcon.com. I put a ton of work into this show, and I'm glad it's a blessing to you guys. Anybody who is being blessed, I would just encourage, check out Patreon, check out ericcon.com for as little as $5 a month. You too can support the work. You get a lot of perks and benefits, including if you're part of the VIP $20 a month membership group, you get a pint glass, Hardman pint glass sent to you. Had a couple of those floating around social media uh, the last couple of days, people enjoying our patrons, enjoying their pint glasses. Uh, I just want to say to you guys, I love you. I'm so appreciative. Um, there's so many good men. There's so many good men and women around the country who are fighting the good fight, who are being faithful, and you are those people, so thank you. Uh, I just want to let people know that the words of encouragement um, that you have sent my way are so encouraging, and that's really a huge part of the reason why I keep doing this, um, is to enrich the body of Christ and to see people blessed. So. Uh, just know that that stuff is, is hugely important and impactful to me and uh, deeply appreciate all of you guys. The last thing I want to say, and to close this, uh, this episode out, uh, I am deep, deep, deep working on the Hard Men book. Uh, more to come on that, but just I would encourage you, if you think about it, be praying about it. Uh, pray that the Spirit would be leading me. Um, again, I look at this as a joint thing between God's people, you guys, um, and what he is doing in this situation to bring the truth of gendered piety and his word uh, to bear in a culture that hates that message. So again, I just appreciate your prayers. Just know that I'm praying for you guys. I do so on a daily basis and uh, appreciate your prayers as well. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.